And we're back. Welcome to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am also Mike, and this is the second part of our Tribeca 2023 coverage. Once again, this will be a guest-hosted episode, and I will be joined by Scott Yeager of Challenge Mania, who's been going to the Tribeca Film Festival now 10 years or so, and he's got a ton of uh, cool stories and wisdom to share with you all. And as promised, today's part two will include the vast majority of our Tribeca film reviews. Go back to part one to hear our first two film reviews, the adults and first-time female director. And today you're going to get the next 15. So you'll have 17 in total, but 15 on this episode. And yes, they will all be non-spoiler. Uh, we'll discuss Elemental, The Black and Stan Lee and a couple other films that are available to you all right now, streaming or in theaters. Uh, Scott was also a big fan of the next Ariana DeBose film. I really loved another Richard E. Grant performance. Uh, Tessa Thompson's got a new movie coming out. And you'll just hear a bunch of intriguing setups uh, for, for movies that are coming, whether it's you know this summer or next fall or perhaps uh, all the way into 2024 that we were able to catch at Tribeca. And I think we saw upwards of like a dozen world premieres too, which was really cool. So we're getting in at the ground floor there. We'll certainly also continue our conversation from part one, our Tribeca Festival how-to guide that colors a lot of our thoughts throughout this, uh, this episode as well. So do go back to part one if you're looking for the more substantive version of this fuller conversation. Uh, and if you're going to attend Tribeca in the future, or really if you're going to attend any film festival for that matter, Scott has a lot of great advice uh, and we give you guys a lot of tips from our experience uh, because we've learned a lot from from all these adventures that we take uh, food drink suggestions etc you'll get it all uh, finally if you enjoy what you guys hear do please rate and review both our shows challenge mania and mike mike and oscar uh, when you guys click that fifth star when you hit those like or subscribe buttons and especially when you take the time to leave us a positive write-up and review you do a lot to support our show so as always we thank you all for that so without any further ado i will edit you back into my conversation with scott yeager of challenge mania on all things tribeca 2023 So I'm going to rip off five quick ones here, and I know you're going to do a couple quickies later, but Elemental and The Blackening, they they hit theaters this last week. I've already did a, a longer review on Elemental, but I do want to say something about the experience at the BMCC. A lot of people brought their kids to this particular, you know, thousand-person centerpiece screening, quote-unquote, North American premiere, uh, and it was a good crowd. Like the, my favorite thing about the elemental Tribeca experience is that you had a, just people l loving every joke, huge laughter at every joke, a uh, big rounds of applause at the end of, uh, of elemental, perhaps the longest that at least I tabulated with, <laughs> I had 37 seconds written down because New Yorkers don't need to do the standing O like these other film festivals necessarily. So elemental was a good watch in a big room for me there. And I do think, especially on, on the, the heels of this bad box office, Pixar performance, elemental is a much 
better movie than that uh that box office number at least in terms of how other pixar movies have done in in the past i thought some of them have overperformed uh in my view just because of the pixar brand name elemental's a little bit under it's become pixar's overrated that it's so underrated kind of deal now with elemental do you got anything for me well i haven't seen it yet but it's funny it's like so i i'd be shocked if it if in any way shape or form premiering at Tribeca even subconsciously led to sort of a, a downgrade in expectation for this film or anything like that. But I wonder in a roundabout way if that kind of mm. did. So so here, follow my thinking on this. So this this movie, I think, because I, I have not seen it yet, but I have very much been plugged into sort of narrative of, of this movie coming out, yeah. being sort of well-received, but now it's like been sort of this catastrophic uh, sort of uh, with a performance as far as Pixar standards go that now it's becoming, as you mentioned, underrated by being overrated or whatever. You know, you compare it to, say, like Lightyear from last year, where I think when that movie... Under- so much better. When Lightyear. that movie yeah. underperformed, I think a lot of people were, were quick to blame it on the film itself. This one, I think people are, are less quick to blame it on the film, although you have some people who think it might be a little paint-by-numbers or a little not-for-kids or whatever. I think people are now sort of wondering what was wrong with the the marketing or the approach here. And and what I will say is I feel like this film for whatever reason hasn't in my opinion felt like it's had the proper lead up that most Pixar films have had almost mm-hmm. that to the degree where I sort of forgot or didn't realize it was a Pixar film. Like I thought it was some sort of competing animation houses film, whether it be not illumination or whatever, but maybe like a tier below that. And subconsciously for me, when I saw that it was doing some sort of a premiere at Tribeca, I wondered if this was going to be like a little engine that could sort of competing Pixar alternative film. So in mm-hmm. a way, they, and granted, I live in New York and go to the Tribeca Film Festival, so it makes sense that was, this would have had an impact on me. But there was just some mixed marketing here where I just like didn't know what... And then almost when you find out that it is Pixar, it's too late. And it doesn't have the sort of juggernaut, oh, we have to see this like we see every Pixar movie kind of thing. Here's, I'll give you an example. I can't tell you who the voices are in this movie. And for the most part, when it comes <laughs> to animated movies, you either immediately know like... The, the music and who does the music or you know at least one voice behind it or you know what I mean the, so right. this one seemed to kind of like I, I, I just I, I don't know it sort of sort of existed in this void which which sort of makes sense for a film that's like premiering at a film festival but not necessarily in the theaters and this kind of tried to have its cake and eat it too where it premiered at Tribeca but then also just came out in the theater and came out in the theater in my opinion after very little fanfare so like to me this was like like with my kid who again you talk about people mm-hmm. bringing their kids to this movie like my kids for, you know I have two kids but my kid who's even old enough to go to a movie is 4 years old i'm constantly trying to find the films that fit into the sweet spot of movies that i can take him to that he'd be excited to see but that he won't get scared by like i tried to take him to see right. spider-man into the spider-verse you know, we watched the first one at home. He seemed to enjoy it. I took him to see the second one in the theater. We had to walk out after an oh, hour. It's it like too intense for oh, him, wow. right? And you sort of get why. I mean, there's a lot of talk about death, and it's like it's almost you know very much so for adults, right? But again, I got greedy, mm-hmm. right? I'm like trying, I'll be kind of trying to force it on him a little bit. And then you know, you have movies that try no matter what. I'm trying to get him to want to see Lyle Lyle Crocodile. He just doesn't have any interest, you know. And then you know, so I write down every time there's a movie that seems like it might be in his wheelhouse. So Ninja Turtles is coming out on August second, and then you had Mario Brothers and mm-hmm. this and that, and this one for whatever reason was just not on my 
radar. It did not feel elemental to the to the movie going experience of my four year old <laughs> kid for whatever reason. It just I didn't know when it was coming out. I didn't know who was in it. I just like none of us were excited by it. My wife, myself included, and we are very much big like Disney people. We're always like trying to figure out what the next thing is, hoping that this will be like the next IP that my kid is in love with. That there's going to be a ride right. at Disney or whatever. So. This one just got caught in the crosshair somehow. And you mentioned like a standing ovation at Tribeca. I do not doubt that this movie was overqualified to be at Tribeca Film Festival. It is rare that animation movies are at Tribeca at all, but certainly animated films that I imagine cost as much as this did based on the production value and how it looks and stuff like that. You might see like a 2D animated short or something like that, but very infrequently do movies like this happen at Tribeca. So even if it was like a kind of good B minus stick the landing Pixar movie to be at Tribeca, like that's kind of a cheat code there. Like, so the fact that that got a standing ovation does not surprise me in that context. The problem is it's not competing with the other movies at Tribeca on the big screen in the major box office. It's competing with the flash and it's competing with Mario brothers and spider verse and all these other films, you know? And so I feel like it was like a Tribeca movie competing with all these big, it was like this, you know, what is it, small fish, big pond, whatever the analogy is. And mm-hmm. I just don't even know. I think it was just one of the, mo- the most botched sort of marketing campaigns I've ever seen for a movie of this stature to the point where when you compare it to Lightyear, it's like, yeah, Lightyear felt like this massive failure because you knew from such a lead up and all the press and all the should it have been Tim Allen and oh, it's Chris Evans, big star and this and that and all the toys that are still warming the pegs at my target. You can't walk by my target without seeing 40 Buzz Lightyear toys in there from the movie last year. That's how much they invested in that movie. This movie. I couldn't tell you one thing about it. Who's in it? Who directed it? Uh, yeah. You know, whatever. Is there music? I don't know. Like, what? None of it. So I just, I just feel like they kind of just botched it completely for a major motion picture release. But they seem like they did very well for premiering it at BMCC at Tribeca, which is probably not what you want out of a two hundred million dollar movie. No, two hundred million dollars with a relatively low concept. I mean, we talk about. I mean, I'm I'm making a play on words there. Obviously, is these movies should be high concept in the sense that you understand what it's about, and, and even if you do with this one, it's just not that enticing. And, and to talk about you know selling a movie to your four year old. Fire Girl and Water Made Boy Fall in Love, that's probably not what he's looking to go to. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you're interested in a light movie day or whatever, a light fair, and, and you want to see that yourself, or because you know the brand name Pixar, you can entrust them to handle it well. But ultimately, what this movie should have been you know, marketing itself on is, it, is the immigrant story involved. And that that was much more of the success for me than the rom-com part of it. But that's again, that's not going to be something you market to the kids. Pixar's just in a bit of a bind here because they could have marketed the animation. Like this is this looks like real water. The animation is stupendous. But how do you market animation effects and special effects after Avatar: The Way of Water just got you know won Oscars for it? So they're kind of in a weird spot there. And then you have the kind of simple simplistic metaphor for the you know the immigrant experience. Which doesn't necessarily like you're not going to sell the movie on that. So what you what do you sell the movie on? You sell the movie on all the puns and all the silliness, the jokey jokes that you make on the water and and obviously the elements humor, which is again science jokes not going to work on your four year old. So 
All right, we got to the bottom of the elemental. I, I do. I'll go faster with these next four. The blackening, good horror comedy, Scott, and I love this genre, and it's hard to do. You got to lean into one or the other. I feel it's got to be more horror, more comedy. Like Get Out, Cabin in the Woods, The Screams. Those are scarier than the Shaun of the Dead's Tucker and Dale versus Evils or The Blackening, which are, are funnier. So this movie really worked as a comedy, in my opinion. 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. Lionsgate's got a winner here. They put it out in 1,700 screens. Did $6 million. It's going to, on a $5 million budget, The Blackening's going to be very profitable at the end of the day. You know, obviously there's, there's things I, I take away from it that I don't love. I mean, I don't know. It's another B-minus grade, but I think the, the character set, in terms of you know the villain reveal and all that stuff not not necessarily what's what its strong point is what works is like these characters mixing it up as old friends getting back together kind of like the the adults in that way where you have you know these positive sentiments on on you know friends reuniting so i'm into the blackening in that regard is was this a movie that you were gonna you were gonna try and see at some point maybe when it came on vod at the very yeah, least so this is a, like you know i'll compare it to like a movie like bodies 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 right where these sure. movies i sort of naturally not on purpose but like just naturally end up waiting until either an amount of time goes by where people are talking them up and you actually hear all oh, this movie's you know better than the maybe the audience that it's garnered so far and whatnot and then it kind of becomes kind of a cult following film or i i never hear anything about it and i kind of just end up never watching it you know and that's sort of how a lot right. of movies just fall through the cracks with me or movies get talked about enough where i do seek them out and where i end up usually watching them is on airplanes so like bodies 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 i watched on an airplane emily the criminal i watched on an airplane like that's normally yeah. how like films of these size and sort of you know high concept you know horror comedies things like that it's kind of the perfect uh place to watch them in my opinion because they tend to end up being, you know, about 90 minutes and, and uh, you know, they end up, a lot of men up being featured on, you know, Delta flights and this and that just by way the distribution for a lot of these films go and stuff. So, so I'll, I'll admit it's, it's one of those movies where if I, if I hear good things about it and I'm, you know, flying to Phoenix in July and I end up throwing it on and I'll, and I'll end up checking it out. But then there are, you know, for every one of those that I end up checking out, there's a hundred of them that I never get to because, you know, it just never uh, builds the steam and, and gets the regard that I think it's, is worth my right, time. Right. Well, I, it, I would say that this was this was a fun discovery. I mean, I have the AMCA list like you do, and this was a fine time using the AMCA list. Uh, Stan Lee, Take Care of Maya, two documentaries that came on Disney Plus and uh, Netflix, respectively, couldn't be more opposite. Stan Lee was a tribute piece to the legendary Marvel creator. It went too fast. It yada yada so many of the conflicts he's had in his life. It literally glossed over decades. It's a fine watch, but like I can't buy it as something that that's believable in a sense and certainly not journalistically sound. Otherwise, Take Care of Maya was like this really focused story on a tragedy and and it's just devastating and infuriating on how true this story is probably is and uh, you know obviously we we don't know but the florida healthcare and the government agencies involved in this uh this girl's care being taken away from her mother the mother was expect, uh, suspected of child abuse because she had such a unique and abnormal diagnosis uh, she had this pain disorder that has since been confirmed but this doc just hollowed me out. Take care of Maya. The opposite experience of the of the fluff piece that was Stan Lee. But you know, again, Tribeca going hard for the docs. 
you're going to get into a couple documentaries in a minute that uh, you were able to see. But it, it's nice that they're going towards the issue docs when they can. These these typically play on the Academy. Take care of Maya again. You know, probably in the C range for me. Stan Lee C minus. But uh, those came out recently. Otherwise, I, I for seven bucks I bought Maggie Moore's. This was John Hamm starring opposite Tina Fey, uh, directed by John Slattery, all you know of Mad Men as well, with uh, the, one of the coaches from Ted Lasso involved, and you know star-studded cast. This movie was a thirty percenter coming out of Tribeca. They did not like it at Tribeca. It's since bumped up to like forty-eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So people have liked it more at home than at Tribeca. Go figure. I was not a huge fan. I kind of zoned out a little bit. It's this murder mystery thing. It just the movie's unfocused on what it should have been focused about. Either be the who done it or be a horror comedy or whatever. But it's not funny, unfortunately, and we're left with this tonal mess. Uh, Maggie Moore's so. Would you take uh, any of these recommendations or opposite thereof, Scott? I mean, am I making sense? Well, it's so there? interesting. I mean, you again, with Tribeca, it's like I, I don't mean this in a bad way, but so many things about Tribeca to me are situational in that, like for instance, so I'll say the, the Maggie Mays, which is one of the most infuriatingly written out titles ever, where it's like Maggie May and then in parentheses oh, the, and S, and it just like, I mean, Moore's, yeah, with the yeah. yeah. So I was deciding yes. between that. So that premiere was on Monday night at the same time as a premiere that I went to uh, for a film called ISS that I'll talk about because it was my f- my favorite Good. film that I saw by far. Uh, they were at the same time, and the, and the kicker was that the film that I went to before, uh, which was First Time Female Director, was also at SVA where ISS was. So my wife and I went to that. Then we had a break. We went, got sushi. We came back. We went to ISS, whereas... If we were going to go to the Maggie Moores, we would have had to go all the way down to the Spring Studios, which yes. among the venues for Tribeca, that is to me the least ideal. It is not a theater. It is a converted event space. So you are basically watching a screen uh, in a room that has no stadium seating. It's all just like flat level chairs set up on the floor. Really? Um, I did once a few years ago now. I mean, yeah, I forget. It must have been almost maybe eight years ago now. Went to a premiere screening of a film that starred Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day and then uh, they played a few songs after with Joan Jett so there was like kind of a functional reason to have that there when I went to that but this was just uh, I saw the Biz Marquee doc there on Saturday and selfishly I thought maybe it was going to be like a performance mm-hmm. or something I know obviously not Biz Marquis passed away but somebody and no it was just a film screening in this very like kind of dead it's like watching a movie in an airplane hangar or something it's this very kind of a dead wow. space to watch a film did not love it um, there on Saturday and would not have loved it for Maggie maze either um so i'm glad i made the right choice i also was rewarded in in really enjoying uh, iss but but i will say at the time i really wanted to see it because to me i'm a big Mad Men fan so the idea of reuniting slattery and and uh ham who i believe have a scene together in the uh, the fletch film uh you know him obviously behind the camera i think he maybe is maybe he's on screen i forget did slattery make it no not at all i don't I mean, unless he's in heavy makeup. To me, I, I just, him, even being in the room with those two at the same time would have been cool to kind of see them, you know, interacting and stuff like that. I'm that big of a mm-hmm. madman, Mark. But hearing your review of it, it's one of those things where it's like, to me, if I miss the moment of going and being there and seeing it with them, I'm not going to, especially when gotcha. I'm hearing reviews from people like you, I'm not going to watch it. You know, it's like, and, and so few of these films end up getting to the point where, and Blackening is a, is a rare example, as is Elemental, because as we mentioned, those were two kind of cup of coffee, kind of ceremonial premieres here, which weren't even competing for the narrative prize. They're just kind of, you know, the the the, uh, the Blackening premiere was at Apollo Theater, and the... the um, 
you know, they did the Elemental at BMCC, but they're very much not Tribeca movies or very major release movies that are kind of, again, having their cake and eating it too. A lot of these Tribeca movies, if I don't catch them the week of and, I don't know, and I'm not seeing them with Slattery and John Hamm and whatnot, unless I'm being told by someone like yourself or by five other people I know, you have to see this movie, I am probably never getting to it, you know, mm-hmm. and with few exceptions. And, and some of those few exceptions tend to be the docs because some of the docs, I will say, end up finding second homes on streaming and stuff like that. And you almost like don't even realize that it was a Tribeca movie at first. Um, for instance, the Stan Lee doc is now on Disney+. Plus. There's a lot of synergy there with Marvel content. I'd imagine a lot of people are going to watch that just by nature of like, oh, cool, it's a new Marvel thing to watch. Um, it's also been kind of, you know, in the news lately because I believe, you know, one of the other Marvel creators, his, you know, family or him directly, or they're very up in arms that, um, that they seem mm-hmm. seemingly like whitewashed any credit to anyone other than Stan Lee for everything. Uh, which, you know, right. I will say that this kind of, I see both sides of it with that and having not even seen the movie. I get streamlining things for for just linear narrative sake, you know, like when you're making a documentary about a person, you know, like I saw a documentary on Cindy Lauper. I saw a documentary on Henrik Lundqvist. I saw a documentary on Biz Marquis. And although you can have like voices in those films that are talking about them and then in essence their credit gets given to them based on their proximity to them or their role in the story. It is a little too much to ask to give six minutes to, and let's also focus on the contributions of these other people. If you do watch Stan Lee, though, Sky, if you do, I mean, he does that. He he goes on, uh, this is how this animator, this is how he and I worked. This is all, you know, this is his resume. And they do shortcut a lot of that with beautiful animation, for that matter, and, and go into Jack Kirby and Steve Dick. Yeah, Jack Kirby's the one that I think everybody's a little bit, uh, you know, they're saying his son, I guess, blasted the fact that Jack Kirby didn't get the amount of credit he deserves. I, I don't know. It was very strange to read some of that. I think that's maybe overblown. But at the same time, it's focused on Stan Lee. And, yeah, Stan Lee gets a lot of the credit. So uh, wild to view that controversy from both sides of it. But I do uh, hope you, we can finish up with uh, two more segments, reviewing ten more films. But, you know, we started early so we can happily go long here, Scott, as, as long as you could do it. But you, you had five films. You mentioned ISS I'm curious to hear why. I mean, this is this is one of the best reviewed films at the festival as well, 88%. But I'm curious to hear why you loved it as much as, as so well. So this was, and again, uh, I, you know, I, I hope my entire you know hour and 45 minute preamble has you know drilled it into your heads that to me, it that, that what's great about the film festival, particularly when you're going in person, is that it does not need to be about this. But th- this this was not just this year, but among all the years I've gone, like one of the films that I could see with a bit of a campaign or a wide release or whatever standing on its own as sort of a feature film that say, hey, maybe you caught it on a Wednesday AMC A-list or hey, maybe it showed up on Netflix and you watched it. And that's because, so this movie is both wide in scope, but also very like small as well. Uh, It's almost like kind of the perfect COVID era production in that the entire thing takes place on the International Space Station. So mm-hmm. in essence, obviously there's a lot of, you know, post and a lot of effects of, of having this thing take place in space. There's a lot of, I, I would uh, assume, uh, you know, sort of effects shots added after the fact. I won't give away too much, but like there's a lot of, you know, shots of, you know, uh, astronauts being outside of the space station where in the background you can see Earth and everything going on on Earth and things like that. That again, the production value of all that stuff is good enough that you buy all of that stuff. But 
Mm-hmm. That being said, it is still essentially a movie with only six people in it. So, and it's six people in essentially one location, even though that location is right. a bit extravagant. It is a space station in outer space. It, you're essentially making a movie with six people in one location, which is music to you know a line producer's ears, especially in the age of having to film this during a pandemic. All of the technical elements to it and making it look like they're in zero gravity, which, you know, having the benefit of hearing the director talk and hearing wow. logistically how they did it, they did not do it in a zero gravity tank or anything like that. They use these harnesses and things like that to make it look like they're actually floating that are apparently very uncomfortable <laughs> and whatnot. At the core of this movie are a couple performances that are also just like really good and sort of very, just really great and in the pocket of like not trying to do too much, but just like nailing what they're going for. The, the lead and the person who's going to get all the headlines is Ariana DeBose, obviously, coming off of an Oscar win, coming off of hosting the Tonys. This Q&A and screening was literally the day after the Tonys. So she went and hosted the Tonys on Sunday and then was was oh, nice. live on stage at this tiny theater at, at SVA the next day. Uh, Chris Messina, who is, to me, someone I've had like my eye on and really enjoyed ever since the Mindy Project, but he's just been having a run here. I hear he's got a great show on Peacock I haven't seen yet, but he was great in Air. He's great in this. He's super likable. P- I, I'm going to butcher this guy's name, but uh, Pilau Asbeck, uh, who you might know if you're a Game of Thrones guy, uh, as being uh, Euron Greyjoy towards the end of the series there. He becomes kind of the big bad for the end of Game of Thrones there. Mm-hmm. He's great in this. John Gallagher Jr., who some of you guys might know for some musical theater. He, he was the uh, star of the original American Idiot on Broadway, did sw- uh, um, Spring Awakening, things like that. He was in the newsroom. Uh, and then uh, Costa Ronan and Masha Mashkova. Those are the only cast members in the movie. There's literally only only six people in this movie. Uh, written by right. Nick Shafir, script that was taken off the blacklist, uh, directed by Gabriella Copperwaith. Uh, it, it's just really well done. Doesn't try to do too much. It is 135 minutes. It is a claustrophobic thriller. I will tell you the setup uh, because I won't go into detail, but I just want to like, because it is such a great elevator pitch of a movie, but it is, what if this international space station that is co-operated by the United States and Russia and has three people from the, three astronauts slash scientists from the former military from the US and Russia who coexist, three people and three people living together on this international space station who 365 days a year, 24 hours a day are all copacetic and drinking vodka together and enjoying themselves and finding out about each other's family. What if all of a sudden from afar you could see that something was going down on Earth and there was something going down on Earth, not just between any countries, but between the United States and Russia and simultaneously both members of these, you know, the the U.S. team and the Russia team get messages saying, you know, war taking place between U.S. and Russia, take command of the ISS by any means necessary. And then they lose communication. So it ends up being this kind of thriller sort of, you know, I, I won't say who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. And I'll tell you, it's even oversimplification to imply that, but it is a great, like what if, and just human error, human instinct taking over and these people just doing every sort of pitch under the sun of the, like, you know, what would you do in this instance and who would you trust? And I, I, I don't want to say anything more than that, but when a wow. world war event occurs on earth, America and Russia, both nations, Both nations secretly contact their astronauts aboard the ISS and give them instructions to take control of the station by any means necessary. So that is the log line, uh, and it very much delivers on that process and does not attempt to do much more, which I think is great. So it's a great 90-minute thriller that looks great. All the performances are great. It is very simple. And again, by nature of taking place in outer space, I can't imagine this budget was too high, but the production value is good enough. 22.5 
22.4 million as a production listed. Great. Production so that's pretty high for a Tribeca feature, you know? Yeah. And I don't know if it's, you know, on the heels of, of everything with, uh, you know, West Side Story and getting Ariana DeBose or whatnot, or again, the strength of the script, sure. you know, script is very highly regarded at the time, but very well executed. They did not waste a dollar, you know, and they didn't waste a dollar in a good way, in a bad way, because it's like, it's all there on the screen. You can see, obviously, the seams of like, hey, we're not going to be doing much, but but there's very much, you're seeing, you know, people outside of the space station floating or whatever. I'm not going to say it looks like gravity, but it doesn't look like a, you know, an eighth grade, you know science project so and so the fact that it hit on all cylinders in that regard you don't necessarily feel like you're watching a small movie like to me it just felt like something if this movie just came out in june on you know whatever it is x amount 400 screens or whatever started getting some good buzz like same way a movie like searching right with john cho comes out whatever starts getting some buzz you go you catch it on a thursday at a list whatever i could totally see this movie having that kind of trajectory uh, especially having a name like ariana debose in it where she's not in that many for as much as her career is on the upward trajectory right now it's not like she has like 10 huge movies in the can i know she's going to be in you know uh craven the hunter and things like that and i'm sure her next five years will be littered with movies but this one i think is coming out at a nice sweet spot where she's sort of like a bigger name than her sort of you know catalog of content has to back up at this point so for anyone clamoring for more of her and this is definitely something where it's a very toned down role for her you know it's not even something that you would normally even like when you hear the name you'd think like oh let's cast her in this uh but she nails it so Mm -hmm. i you know again wherever this lands no pun intended i would definitely say check this out uh, I would be hard-pressed to find someone who would be uh, disappointed by this movie uh, delivers uh, at a clip that you rarely see from these film festival films because they either swing for the fences and kind of overdo it and they kind of overshoot their shot and they're trying to do too much or they're too small in their scope. And when you're thinking about what to spend $20 on or thinking what to waste three hours on in your week, you sort of sometimes want more than just three kids running around Binghamton like the adults, you know? So this provides <laughs> that. This was a Hollywood movie, uh, but very much responsibly budgeted um, at Tribeca Film Festival. So very happy I did choose this over Maggie Mays, especially after hearing your you so iss go check it out that's my number one of the seven movies i saw good 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 and and i think they're looking for a distributor so who knows when it'll land on the release calendar uh but do you have an ideal month for it where maybe uh next march next like you mentioned june uh maybe next june a lot of these tribeca films will come out a year later which is kind of cool for us to see or see them that far in advance yeah i would say like a good time for this movie is when the theater isn't too crowded this movie should have come out the week that that stupid dinosaur adam driver movie came out you know <laughs> if this movie had come okay. out that week and everyone would have loved yeah. it and thought it was great and said, oh, you see it. And then they give it three or four weeks in the theater and it makes, you know, maybe it makes $10 million, maybe it makes us $25 million back. And then, you know, maybe you sell the distribution, you know, to, you know, some of these uh, streamers and whatnot. But it's perfect for one of those dead weeks where nothing comes out and whatever does come out is going to have eyeballs on it for better or for worse. And so for when a movie like that movie is a big stinker and everyone finds out it's a, it's a stinker because no one else is kind of spreading their time on this other stuff. Now it would be a terrible week for this thing to come out, obviously with all the movies right. out and stuff like that. So maybe like June isn't necessarily the best month uh, per se, but so maybe a March, you know, um, I also yeah, don't th- I just I, said yeah, March. Yeah. Good, good. March 10th was 65. So our instincts, there you go. 
go. Our collective instincts there are right. All right, so Downtown Owl was another premiere you saw. This is Sony Pictures based on a book written by Chuck Klosterman. Who was completely Lily absent, Ray. by the way. So here's what was weird about this. Oh. I'm a huge Klosterman fan. Uh, both, you know, obviously appears on a lot of podcasts that I listen to. He's a big ringer guy, Grantland guy, mm. etc. I became familiar with him very early on. He wrote a book called uh, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. There was very much like a self-referential sort of like pop culture guide to the 90s and music and things like that. He obviously started as a music critic. And he start, sort of mainly started in sort of nonfiction and things like that and has transitioned into novelization and has written a bunch of novels in the last 20 years, none of which I've read. And I believe this is the first one that's ever been turned into a movie. I was shocked to not see Chuck at this film premiere and not mention it all. I mean, like he's mentioned obviously is being based in the book, but I would think for what I would assume is like a benchmark for his career, having a book that he wrote 15 years ago, whatever it was, turn into a feature. I was shocked he wasn't there, so I'm curious to know if it was a scheduling conflict or what, because this was all about Lily Rabe and all, all about um, Hamish Linklater and, and them, of course, the filmmakers behind it. They did mention Chuck briefly, but I was surprised Chuck wasn't at the forefront of this or this movie, because I do think that would help. There was a lot of stuff that worked for me. I will say, you know, what it has going for it in addition to, say, the adults, that it is a very small town as well. It takes place in this fictional small town of Owl, North Dakota, uh, an area of the world that Chuck Klosterman is, is f famously from and knows and writes very mm. well. But it does have some more kind of stuff going on with it um, than, say, the adults does. Um, it's got some fun performances in it. Ed Harris is in it. Who else is? Oh, uh, Henry Golding is in it. I ironically, I thought the yep. three most fun performances were, were people who were not, well, I guess the two most fun performances were people who were not there. But then you did have uh, someone who was there. The name is escaping me. But uh, what I'll say about the movie is something feels a little bit off about it. And when I looked up the book afterwards, what it made perfect sense that the book is told through the perspective of alternating narratives. Three characters are given, I, I believe, equal narratization rights where it's like basically the book is like a three-hander, but the movie is basically told huh. through the profile of just Lily Rabe's character. And those other two characters are kind of relegated to supporting roles. And it made a lot more sense because they ended the movie the same way that he ends the book and the same way that you would end a book written about three people. So it's a little open, a little, uh, you know, up, up and down. And I can't say necessarily that I would recommend it, but I would say if you're a fan of the book, I would definitely check it out because I think it's, if anything, an interesting depiction of a book because they definitely made a, a lot of choices for how to adapt something that is told in a very specific way to the screen. It's interesting that it was done that way by the star slash director and co-director of the film. So again, not something I'm rushing out to see, but if you're a Closerman fan, particularly a fan of the book, uh, I would check it out. But um, yeah, somewhere probably in the middle wow. uh, of my uh, of my seven. So apparently, then if I'm reading you right here, Chelsea Peretti, we wanted her to do more of the Lily Rabe directing and feature herself more. When Lily Rabe, we probably wanted to, her to do more of the Chelsea Peretti thing and, and be more... Uh, be more economical, uh, I guess, maybe maybe generous in how she gave the story to the other two characters from the book, principal characters, that is. Who who were those characters? Do you know? Uh, was it Ed Harris and Vanessa Hudgens? Was it Henry Golding? Yeah, so, in the, no, so there's Glazer? another character um, played by an actor whose name escapes me. He's, you know, he's only... Finn Wittrock? No, so Finn plays a, Finn plays like a scumbag teacher who's like having an affair with multiple students, <laughs> oh, no. both on and off the screen. Ugh. But uh, And his character, you almost wonder if there's going to be more to it or if there's going to be a twist with that. Now, one of the students in the, in the uh, school is one of the feature characters in the book, and I'll look up who the actor who plays him huh. is. 
August Bianco. That's Rosenstein? him. Yeah. So August um, okay. is the one who plays the character that's much larger in the book. Ed Harris is the other one who's much larger in the book. In the film, he definitely feels like kind of a. Um, and that might be because maybe you can only get Ed Harris for a certain amount of days. Although he is in a, a large percentage of the film, he's very much treated kind of like the old wise man who comes in and out. Whereas wow. he's very much, I think, one of the co-narrators of the book. But um, look, I, I will say, I mean, for a first-time, you know, directing pair, I believe they're life partners as well, uh, Hamish and, and Lily. I thought it was, you know, definitely a, a fine film, and and I think perfect for a film festival, especially when, you know, you talk about the people that were in it and small town and you know, kind of l- low stakes, but also do. You de- definitely going for it in certain ways. So, I mean, you know, as much as I'm not necessarily writing home about it um, or telling you to run and go see it now, I do think it was sort of the, the, the perfect film festival movie. So you're generous with Downtown Owl where you can be. Uh, you did mention a few times you wanted to, to review these documentaries together. You already reviewed the All Up in the Biz venue. You also saw, saw Open Heart on Henrik Lundqvist. Uh, all up in the biz being about Biz Marquis. And then you saw another, uh, uh, another you know, musical doc on Cindy Lauper called Let the Canary Sing. So you saw a couple profile docs in a way. Yeah, what's interesting, it's like, so yeah, so they're all, they're, they're kind of very similar and different in a lot of ways in the sense that, you know, they're all profile docs. Two of them are music docs, but yet, Two of them, you know, I would argue that almost the Lundquist doc and the Bismarck Key doc are almost more similar because they're kind of more paint by numbers. Um, and I thought the Cindy Lauper mm-hmm. doc was by far the, the strongest of the three. What I'll say that the, you know, the Bismarck Key doc had working against it is it didn't have any sort of bells and whistles to it. The Lundquist doc didn't either, but at least Lundquist was there to talk afterwards. And obviously Bismarck Key is no longer with us, but I would have loved if this came with some sort of a tribute to him or some sort of a performance or something like that. And, you know, not, not take anything mm-hmm. away from the, the director. Sasha Jenkins, who was there to, f- to speak both before and after the film, very eloquently about hip-hop, and he's very passionate and everything like that, but sometimes you do get a little bit ahead of yourself with, oh, who's going to be there? How cool is this going to be? What not? So that was a little bit disappointing, and as I mentioned, not my favorite venue. This one, I think, is going to Showtime, so you guys can have a chance to check it out. Very paint-by-numbers documentary structure. Had one particular oh. choice that it used that I found to be sort of haunting in its its bad ideaness, which is a term I'm inventing, oh, no. where I don't know. I almost don't know if I want to spoil this, but it's a documentary. It's not a plot point, but the through line of the movie, uh, in in addition to going back and starting from just a great sort of life story biopic style doc of Bismarcky and and all the footage of him is great and and stuff like that, and all the people who talk about him are are great. But and you know we all kind of have the the stomach for watching a kind of paint by numbers documentary, which of course you know I do at home a lot. But to get up and go and stuff like that, like seeing this on the big screen, I re- I very much did feel like I was like pressing play on my phone and just watching it on a big screen it was very kind of you know felt like a, a small screen presentation which makes sense it's going to showtime but the through line of it is they have god I, I i i don't know if it's actually his wife or an actor playing his wife but in a hospital room so so bismarck he, towards the end of his life wow. you know was in the hospital for a while and and yeah. and, and they have bismarck he played by a muppet style puppet uh, in a hospital bed, interacting with actual actors playing nurses and doctors and his wife. Uh, it might actually also just be his wife. And I found this to be hilariously distracting in like the worst way. I, 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 yeah. I just thought I, I couldn't believe that they that someone had had this idea. Uh, huh. And they kept going back to it. And I just like was mortified by how, how weird of a decision it was. And, and I might be not realizing something that, that makes it charming or interesting. I, I just I, I absolutely hated that choice. 
But I look, I, I enjoyed learning little things about him. Like he was a collector and he had this huge storage facility with all these like toys and stuff like mm. that that he collected and whatnot. I, I had no idea that Tracy Morgan grew up uh, as a peer of his and as a peer of a lot of these hip hop guys in Brooklyn and grew up around Rakim and all these guys. So I learned a thing or two. Um, but this is very much something I, I could have watched uh, at home. And, and although I would say it's, you know, a solid, you know, B minus doc, and he is a, a fairly interesting subject in that I will admit he is not someone who I know a ton about, you know? Um, I think that when you are doing a doc on someone where there's so much information out there about them, you have to sort of gravitate towards like more interesting ways of, of uh, targeting the subject or, you know, at least having footage we haven't seen in a while, things like that. This, I didn't need that because I just didn't know that much about uh, Bismarck Key, so it's definitely a learning experience, but kind of just paint by numbers, as was the Lundqvist doc. So basically what happened with Henrik Lundqvist is career goalie of the Rangers, one of the best goalies of all time, it played 15 years in the yeah. NHL, all of which with the Rangers. Towards the end of his tenure, they make the Stanley Cup, and then that's sort of his kind of last grasp at greatness before getting let go by the Rangers, getting picked up by the uh, Capitals, but never actually getting to play for them because he, he discovers that he has this uh, really bad heart condition, and he ends up having to have open-heart surgery. Uh, this all taking place during the pandemic and he ends up never really getting back on the ice and, and getting to play for uh, Washington formally retires and then just gets his number retired by the Rangers and things like that. What he uh, revealed him and the filmmaker revealed after the fact that sort of makes sense now having watched the movie is he went through this entire experience uh, during a lot of which his wife and he were filming, you know, moments with them and their kids on the private planes. They were taking to some of these mm -hmm. doctor visits. They would record some of these doctor's visits both over the phone and in person, but so they could kind of remember what the doctor had said. But that after going through this, he kind of retroactively had the idea to make a movie about this experience. And thus, mm. this movie was sort of made... Like the movie, like the, the, hey, I met with filmmakers and now I have a docu uh, documentarian who's going to be making this movie. The new stuff that is shot for this film are a couple sit-downs with him and uh, a couple uh, sessions of him and his life coach and a couple of things of him walking around New York and everything like that. And everything else is found footage. Everything else is footage from his career, footage from his, you know, uh, that he had taken on his phone and things like that. And because of that, and I think because of that sort of how handcuffed you are by that, you really feel the the sort of paint by numbers element of this doc. Like it feels like an E60 almost. You know what I mean? Except it's an E90. So so yeah. so that to me again, you know, seeing it at the BMCC, Lundquist was there. You know, a few of his ex teammates were there. Carl Haglin was there. Like that element of it was cool and everything like that. But again, this is something that could have been an email. You know, <laughs> you know, could could have been an E60. Uh, is the I guess the documentary okay. version yeah. of that. Well, this was the director, Jonathan Hawk, of five thirty for thirties for ESPN. Do, do you think it's going there? Do you know? Do you know where? You know it's going? that would make perfect sense, and that's where it belongs, and not in a bad way. But that's okay. what this is. Gotcha. But so uh, to get to the last one that I thought worked really well, and I'll admit, you know, again, a lot of it is the setting, a lot of it is the audience, and things like that. So the Sydney Lauper film, Let the Canary Sing, which is uh, titled, I thought also out of the three titles, so All Up in the Biz is kind of just like taken from a, you know, a moniker and a saying, and I believe an album title or a song title that Bismarck he used. Open Heart is very much about the open heart surgery that Henrik Lundqvist had. But mm -hmm. Let the Canary Sing, as I guess, you know, they, they say in this doc is taken from when Cindy Lauper was being sued by a former, I believe, record label or someone like that who was trying to keep her from going oh. off and doing her solo career. The G 
judge ruled that no, you know, you do not have the rights to prevent her from, you know, singing or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Let the canary sing. That's what he said, right? So, so just even the creativity of using that as a title, I thought, is, is kind of a microcosm of how this movie, I thought, you know, <laughs> yeah. very much uh, had more to it in its delivery and its pacing to the point where having seen this in a sold out beacon theater, there were so many moments in this, you know, movie that like, you know, got applause and this and that and stuff like that. And not just because I think you're, you're, you're sort of, again, you're this attentive audience that wants very much to applaud this person who's about to come out there and and perform for you. But just like mm-hmm. the movie was well structured in that way, right? And that way is going to play just as well if you're seeing it in a theater by yourself or with an audience and Cindy Lauper isn't there, or if you're watching it at home, it was just very, very well paced. I thought they, they sprinkled in a lot of the humanitarian stuff and a lot of the gay rights stuff and a lot of the things that, you know, you kind of want to have in there, but it didn't do it in a pretentious yeah. way. Um, it also, I thought, I mean, to me, the, the scene of the movie, uh, if you can call it a scene, I guess you, maybe a passage, and I hope this somehow makes its way. Like, you ever, this is the type of stuff that shows up on, like, Instagram stories and, and stuff like that sometimes where you just, like, see, like, a little clip from something. And this would be perfect for that. So it's basically when they're talking about the song, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. And I didn't realize that that was another artist's song. It was a song by uh, another band, uh, a male-fronted band. And Cindy Lauper talks about, you know, the song was brought to her or whatever, but the way that these guys sung it and the tone of the song and the, the vibe of the song was more like, yeah, girls just want to have fun, though. Like, it was almost like the, making it a bad thing. Yeah, girls just want, yeah, but girls yeah, just yeah. want to have fun, right? And so that when, when Cindy Lauper and all the musicians who make this song completely restructure the song, she rewrites it a little bit and they add all the sonic elements to the song and she sort of walks you through the choices. She's like, I wanted it to sound like a carnival and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, you know, the sound of like, you know, a Ferris wheel and blah 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 and then they and and as you're hearing the song she's kind of explaining all this stuff about it and it, it's again the perfect like tip TikTok clip because the level of sort of thought that went into this song that when you hear it just sounds like this happy go lucky hit single from the eighties but when you yeah, hear that that anthem. this scientific precision that went into that that creating this earworm wow. that is standing the test of time and forty years later is still a very famous and beloved song like it makes you think of her and everyone involved and the song itself in this elevated way that you rarely get to hear things like that about songs like that right um so i thought that was perfect that was like kind of the to me if i could show someone like a minute long clip from the movie it would be that but there's a lot of stuff with the ups and downs of her career explaining sort of you know when when her career kind of like hit a standstill and this and that and i loved a lot of the older footage of her in this kind of rock band before she went solo that i really had no idea about was really cool and seeing like the pipes that she had and that she was really kind of like a janice joplin era kind of garage band uh front woman for a long time i had no idea it goes into the kinky boots stuff and all the acting things like that so I personally you know I had like a little bit of a personal connection to her because I was a assistant on talent assistant on Celebrity Apprentice on the season she was on and she was an absolute delight but in addition to all that I just thought this movie was the most elevated sort of documentary of the three I saw like this was the one where I was like oh in addition to her just being good and the music being good and like the subject being something you may or may not want to learn about for 90 minutes the people who made this movie did a good job of stringing it along the way and delivering information in a way that made sense chronologically but also went up and down in the way that you'd want like a good concert or a good movie to go so and then afterwards she came out and played six songs at the Beacon Theater I was sitting near 
I was wow. sitting near uh, Mr. Clive Davis, the famous record executive, <laughs> while I was wearing my Whitney Houston shirt. So, of course, I bothered him for a picture. Uh-huh. But so, yeah, I mean, like, so that, again, perfect setting, and that probably bled into my thought process in some regard. But that being said, I just think, like, if I had to rate these three docs from one to ten, I would say that is probably an eight. The other, you know, the Lundquist doc is probably like a, you know, a six and a half. And I would say the Bismarcky doc is probably like, a, I'll give it a six and a half, too. So, yeah. So, uh, I would say eight and a half. Eight and a half for, for Cindy, and then uh, six and a half for those two. Six songs at the Beacon Theater after the movie. That's got to hell. I mean, that's that, that's awesome. I, I All right. So, Beacon Theater, that's a big plus for a Tribeca venue. You said Spring Studios, no. I would say BMCC, maybe hit and miss. You know, you got to go to the right premiere for that one. Uh, or just understand you're going in for kind of a big audience in, in a way but holy shit six songs and, and look this director her resume is pretty pretty strong totally under control that was on the rise of trump i remember liking that movie that was a hulu original women of troy on cheryl miller i can't and usc women's basketball i think that was i think that was hbo original and then catching hell i can't remember if that was a 30 for 30 on Steve Bartman, the guy who yeah, I think that what yeah, that's definitely ball. a thirty for thirty. Wrigley, Wrigley Field, there the Cubs, Cubs losing the NLCS game. So she's she's been an awesome director. So I'm glad to hear that. Let the canary sing. Is, is yeah, and I don't strong. know where that All one's right. going, but wherever it goes, I would seek it out. Uh, yeah, Blue Angel is the name of that band, by the way, she was in that I had no idea, uh, which, by the way, I've been meaning for last week to look them up nice. and see if they have anything on uh, <laughs> Apple Music because I had no idea she had that uh, era of her career. But yeah, wherever that one goes... I'd recommend checking it out because I think, I mean, look, we all, sometimes when we watch documentaries, I think 30 for 30 did a good job when it came to like single subject things. Like, again, you mentioned the Bartman doc and things like yes. that. But, you know, when you watch documentaries, like we, it's easy to enjoy a documentary about like a person or a band or a thing or whatever that you like, right? So like, like to me, it's almost hard to take yourself out of was this well done when it's like the things you are watching depicted in the documentary are well done, right? Like you're watching a documentary on Steven Spielberg on HBO and it's, well, yeah, just going through Steven Spielberg's life and career and he is well done. So it's like, okay, it's, it's hard to separate. Is this a well done depiction of, or, or delivery system of this person who's obviously well done for me with Cindy Lauper. It's like, you know, I've always respected Cindy Lauper's music. And I, I, oddly enough, in the last few months have like been listening to it in the morning with my daughter, but like, I'm more of a rock guy. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not a diehard Cindy Lauper fan where I'm out there like watching every single bit of content on Cindy Lauper. I don't like follow her on social media and just like, you know, b- you know, bask in her glory at every moment. Like some of the people at this theater did. Mm-hmm. And I love this documentary. So to me, it's like, I think that that that's almost it's easier almost to assess a documentary at face value when it's not someone where you know every beat of the story and i very much did not so and similar goes with the bismarck key which i didn't know any every beat to that one either i just thought this one delivered it in such a more enjoyable way uh where again the the applause and the this and that it's like I use the Marvel movie, the Star Wars movie example, where it's like, when you go to see one of these movies, there's three to four to five moments in the theater where people get up and applaud or whatever, whether it's, you know, Captain America grabbing the uh, Thor's hammer or whether it's everybody running down, oh, everybody's together, whatever it is, or whether it's Avengers Assemble or whether in Star Wars when someone grabs the lightsaber, whatever it is. And then sometimes when you see a movie that isn't one of those and they have those moments, like I remember last year when I saw The Woman King, I was like, wow, there was literally five or six moments in this movie 
that had those moments. <laughs> that tells me something about this movie because it's rare that movies other than those big tentpole IP you know, movies with, and characters that we have a 20-year history with are able to garner that sort of response. And again, to bring it back to the Tribeca Film Festival, the reason that when they're airing the credits and people are applauding at that level for the editors, it's because they're very much like the neighbors and loved ones of the editor, right? And so for this, like there were just like very well-constructed transitions in this documentary that were very set up for giving that response. And I think... That's something, even though not everyone's watching a documentary in a theater, is a really good sign for even watching a documentary at home. So those other ones, I'm sure, will play fine on Showtime and ESPN or wherever they air. But um, they're very much like a dime of dozen documentaries that you've seen. I think that the, the Cindy Lauper one is the one to seek out, which I think you can actually watch right. now on yeah. Tribeca. The online. You can, yeah. I, I didn't go in for the, the at-home uh, this year. I still might because there's, there's like nine movies I want to watch, that being one of them. All up in the biz being another, but uh, yeah, you kind of tempered my my uh, expectations on all up in the biz. But ISS, let the canary sing. You were very high on those two. I'm like very high on two of the next five here to close us out as well. Uh, Bucky effing Dent. There's an asterisk. Uh, Bucky fucking Dent in, in the title. This is David Duchovny's movie, Scott. And, you know, stop me with any questions here, but, uh, I mean, we have Logan Marshall Green, Stephanie Beatriz, and Duchovny as kind of a three-hander for this movie. It's about the 1978 pennant race uh, as ter- in terms of a backdrop for this father-son story because the father is sick with cancer and the son goes home and takes care of him. And uh, Stephanie Beatriz is the nurse and kind of the the charismatic character that keeps popping into their lives. And the place went nuts. BMCC was nuts for this movie. They were gaga for it. They were deliriously laughing at these scenes. So you got to think of what a curmudgeon I am not to love this movie along with such a raucous crowd, but I managed to be measured (laughs) at this movie. Nonetheless, I mean, I'm giving it like a C plus grade. There's some good scenes and all these movies Really strong scenes, like funny scenes. This was based on a book as well. But he has trouble just like blending it all together. It felt very disjointed. The The ending of the plot is just like, that really didn't work for me. But in terms of the sentimentality, in terms of the father-son story, in terms of the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry stuff that I could just eat up, it's probably a worthwhile watch if people can can pop it in uh, you know, on demand or, or go, go on an AMCA list at the end of the day. So Bucky fucking Dent was kind of like my mid-range of these next five. Uh, I have two movies that I really didn't like and then two movies that I really did like. I'll get through the, the did not likes. Eric LaRue, this was Michael Shannon's film. Really good performance by Judy Greer. Alexander Skarsgård. Really funny in this movie, opposite Allison Pill. And then you have Greer playing next to Tracy Letts and Paul Sparks as two pastors kind of competing in the same town. Scott, would you ever think in a million years that a, a, a ripe ground for comedy is a the ba- the, you know, the aftermath of a school shooting? Of course you wouldn't. And this movie tried to pull that off. And I, you know, I almost give Michael Shannon like kudos for giving it a try because there's really good scenes involved here. And he's got a deft touch in terms of his, you know, penchant for drama. He understands what needs to be done. But you cannot, this is like elemental, you cannot get past the concept stage uh, on how this was a faulty concept and a bad idea to begin with. I don't know why he took this on, but it doesn't work. And it doesn't work at its 
you know, at, at its screenplay. Like, the, the whole last act of this movie needs to get thrown out and rewritten. Like, this, this, the whole last act of the movie is the mother uh, in this one-off scene with this other character, and I, I just hated every second of it because it's just spitting out all the themes of the story. Like, the text is the... It's awful. Uh, so that that pissed me off, uh, Eric LaRue, because it, it, it had so much potential, and it's a bummer because I sat next to Michael Shannon's family... <laughs> watching this movie scott so that was a bummer and then blood for dust another major bummer here because the whole crew was there just clapping every second of this film this was kit harrington and john snow scoot mcnary josh lucas shot in billings montana talk about the, the, the committing the cardinal sin of hiding the ball and mistaking surprises for plot twists just just telling us that somebody is bad and and not good later on in the film and look at what a dastardly plan they had all along without seeding that into the screenplay that's poor writing and this movie just gave me that gave me that feeling i remember being in all the screenwriting classes back in the day you went through film school too like don't commit these cardinal sins i'm shocked that these cardinal sins are being committed and yet financed for for these films so blood for dust was just the the one aggressively bad film of the festival for me because i just i I just you know i don't care at a certain point you make me numb to all the twists when you do that i give this movie a d plus despite the fact that this crowd was the happiest going so i don't know do you do you you, are you skeptical of my reviews here are you are you you, no i I, I buy it i'm 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 like almost more skeptical as i've you know, said so many times, like I'm almost more skeptical with a positive re- review because it's so easy to get sucked <laughs> into the moment and the, you know, again, so many people there are, are, are a part of the film or at least rooting for the film that you get sucked into. Wow, standing ovation. Maybe it was good. And all these movies end with applause right. when the credits hit, whether they suck or not. I've never been to a Tribeca yeah. screening where there wasn't uproarious applause, even if it's the worst movie I've ever seen, because that's just how it goes. So it is kind of hard to evaluate. Uh, but when a movie does poke through or so, or, or somebody likes it you, you kind of gotta you know be a little bit skeptical however when people don't like a movie i agree uh, or i, I uh, i'm able to uh, process it almost instantly because look i i don't have the highest expectations for films particularly ones like the ones you just described um because mm-hmm. it's ho- so hard to stick the landing for a concept like that and like i mean look if michael shannon had had come up with and fully executed well a comedy about a school shooting like i I just i just feel like it would have been you know almost like there would have been like guys i think what we have here is this enigma of where this guy just wrote or directed successfully a comedy about a school shooting we cannot have this premiere tribeca we need to like put this in the in the louvre like like i like and so that's why i'm my my the bar for me is always so low uh, for the films themselves that, like, I choose to, and I'm normally just like potentially positively just surprised a couple times rather than mm-hmm. disappointed a lot. Because, again, I kind of realize what this film festival is. What's interesting, and I don't know if you have them in front of you, but the two movies that won the first and runner up for both the Audience Awards and, and, and I believe the narrative documentary feature audience award however they put it i didn't hear of any of them or, or thought of any of them and that and that's no slight to them yeah. they were just very low on like you know uh star power which again to have won and and superseded those films uh is another feather in their cap but it just goes to show it's like 
sometimes it's it, you know the the cream of the crop is not necessarily what you end up going to seek out and that might be that we're terrible you know film scouts but it also just mean that this film festival is about more than just the the, the best films for better and for worse you know so yeah cypher won the founders award which was the big one I think Mike and I are going to kind of touch on this in our next ORC, go figure. Uh, Smoking Tigers won Best Performance, Best Screenplay. Uh, that, that's an exciting movie that is available on the online. The Graduates won Cinematography. Anyway, I can go down the list here. A Strange Path, and then Between the Rains, they won International Documentary Competitions, respectively. So the awards movies are typically that up-and-comer group in terms of uh you know the discoveries the first-time filmmakers the the breaking into the business kind of uh crowd where the movies we're seeing i I would say this i learned my lesson last year because with tribeca i watched 40 movies and like 20 of them were bad so I, i i didn't take that role this year with Tribeca and I'm glad we both didn't because this would be a very different episode you know no I totally and and again I think as you made the mistake last year I I feel like you know trying to be a completionist or trying to do it all or slighting yourself if you end up going to see eight movies and not one of them even sniffs an audience award like you know that that it's not the end of the world, you know, like I, I personally right. think that it's about the experience. It's about the the period of time here where you can really go to a lot of different things. And hey, I mean, look, we didn't even talk about it because, you know, not, neither of us really did any this year. But there again, there's other stuff going on. There's there's panels and there's podcasts and there's TV shows and TV premieres and, and things like that and and just talks and whatnot. And, and those tend to be kind of, you know, done in a different way and sometimes cost a little more and whatnot. But I encourage I would say if you take anything from this podcast um in addition to the 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 few movies that we did actually you know instruct that you want to seek out after this you know i would just say if it's in if you have the means to do so the tribeca film festival is definitely something to entertain putting on your docket for for 2024 and do it in a way that again floats your boat whether it's you know you base it on the the people you like or the the movies you like and hopefully some of the the tips we gave you make it easier on you and whatnot but if you come out of it and you go hey none of those movies are really going to be on my favorite movies of the year list that's fine because it might be on your favorite weeks of the year list you know and you might get to you know have some good food and see some cool people and you know that's not something that i think is uh offered year round certainly not here in new york um so it's you know it's a it's a fun thing and and sometimes to do it and do it right you know you kind of got to cram a lot more in that is maybe a healthy dose, <laughs> dose of uh, movies for a 10-day period or whatever it is. But, you know, if that's going to make yourself feel better when it's over about that, you don't know, have FOMO that you could have gone to see a couple more, I recommend doing it and sucking it up, particularly if you don't have a wife or kids who are going to be mad when you're leaving four times a night. But even if you are, even if you do. <laughs> well, let, let's finish up on that positive note here. I'll, I'll go fast with uh, the audience awards went to the perfect fine. That was the Gabrielle Union career comeback movie that's heading to netflix so that's kind of cool that uh you know she had some momentum coming out of the inspection and and mike and i were wondering if she could make that work so she took first place for the perfect find uh lost souls was in second place a lo-fi genre bending film about a young rapper as he leaves behind his surrogate family and sets out on an expedition across texas contemplating new and old friendships so lost souls second place and then uh documentary category rise the sia colisi story and was in first with maestra 
about uh, Maggie Contreras, uh, excuse me, the filmmaker Maggie Contreras follows women from different backgrounds as they compete for an, the first all-woman competition for conducting. So the Lydia Tarr <laughs> award there. Uh, finally, Scott, I'll just finish with two movies that I really liked that I would like anywhere. Uh, I saw Steve Buscemi's The Listener starring Tessa Thompson follows a helpline volunteer who is part of a small army that gets on the phone every night fielding calls from all kinds of people feeling lonely and broken. And I sat next to two friends of Steve Buscemi's who were really nervous for him going into this film because the the reviews were kind of mixed. And I got to say that even though this is a minimalist cinematic experience because it's just Tessa Thompson in an apartment, like this is riveting drama. I mean, think of buried lock moon 127 hours you're stuck in one location just watching one actor do their work and yet she's on this suicide hotline all night it's some harrowing you know sick and twisted conversations and arguments that she has to get into with all these desperate people and yet yeah i mean this is this is drama at its height to think of all of the convoluted plots of these other movies that did not work and yet this is so minimalist and it does so i I was impressed with tessa thompson certainly and steve buscemi there and and finally i really like the lesson this is going to be a bleaker street daryl mccormick richard e grant julie duplee uh, again, three-hander. The three-handers kind of worked more often than not at the Tribeca Film Festival. And the lesson was Alice Troughton, who's been a longtime TV director of Doctor Who and Merlin and Lore, etc. But this was a beautiful experience at the Village East for me. The, the premiere there, I, you've talked about this theater in the past, to me anyway. I loved it. I was in the tiered room with the huge chandelier. I, I walked by the Uf- UFC MMA, you know, uh, style bender premiere, and I was uh, jealous that I did not go to the uh, Israel Adesanya movie documentary beforehand. But luckily, I got a really good move, good film myself with the lesson B eighty five all day. It's not the plot twists that make this movie work. It's the character study. Like you want to know more about Richard E. Grant's character of this, you know novelist who's past his prime so to speak with this horrible backstory in his family having this cat and mouse game with his wife because uh, they're fighting for control over their son's college admissions to Oxford so they hire Daryl McCormick who's like this tutor and a writer in his own right who idolizes this particular novelist so of course you got all of these you know these these connections here that they don't know about at play and it's it's more of a character study than a big twisty drama, but it's it works, man. These performances, Richard E. Grant delivers, in my opinion, the best performance of the film. He's just so, oh my God, is he? I mean, we saw him in Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, he's so uh, just bizarre sometimes and how he takes these certain scenes in, in, in different ways. So... I'm in. I know we went like a marathon today, Scott, uh, but I'm in for the lesson. I'm in for the listener. You're in for ISS. You're in for Let the Canary Sing. We both reviewed a couple movies that charmed us. First-time female director, Bucky fucking Dent. So who knows, man? Maybe these movies pop up later, but who cares? Because we we like the experience uh, all the more. Scott, please... You know, let remind our people where you know where they can find you on the internet. Challenge Mania, obviously, is a podcast that you guys should 
subscribe to. Those are my words of wisdom today. But but thank you again, man. Yeah, only if you like the challenge. Uh, you can subscribe to Challenge Mania everywhere you get your podcasts. I do occasionally dabble in other things. Uh, did a uh, Succession Mania podcast recently, and will occasionally uh, dive into a, a movie here or there as well. But only if you're a fan of MTV's uh, The Challenge, you need to check me out there. But if you want to follow me on Twitter, at Shot of Yeager, Y-A-G-E-R, I am uh, very frequently talking about uh, movies, sports, other things as well as the challenge, although the algorithm will uh, likely bury anything I write that does not at least have the hashtag challenge mania associated with it, but <laughs> beggars can't be choosers. Um, thanks for having me, Mike. It was a pleasure to uh, get to hang out with you in person, uh, and now I actually have a, a face to go with one of your names, so it's great, um, and uh, I really appreciate you having me on again, and uh, good luck to you guys as this... Uh, you know, film year uh, continues in the midst of a writer's strike and potentially a uh, actor's yeah. strike. And who knows what else happens this year. But, um, yeah, might be uh, having a lot of people going to more movies this year if there's not any uh, TV in the fall. So we'll have to see what happens there. I- I'm excited about this spring and early summer. I mean, we got Asteroid City, Past Lives. Mike and I are going to review those next. Mission Impossible, Barbie Oppenheimer. Looks like a more eventful July than we've had in the past. So I'm hopeful that this film year is starting to kick into gear. Uh, Can was fun to review. Tribeca was fun to review. We'll, we'll be, you know, from afar reviewing Venice and Toronto. And then I'll be going to the New York Film Festival. If I can twist your arm to meet up again, you know, let, let's do yes, that. Yes, that's September, Otherwise, right? You know, yeah, September. So I'll be a weekend warrior in, in a way with New York, uh, if you want. Yeah, let me know. I, uh, you know, I've got there. some trips and stuff in September, but if it works out, we can definitely uh, get together, even if I don't make it to any of the. I've never done the New York Film Festival as a as an attendee, but um, but definitely let me know what your itinerary is. Um, and did you see Past totally. Lives yet? Is it as good as everybody says? Yeah, I, I'm I'm a fan. I mean, it, it's it's talk about uh, a small story it's intimate so don't expect like this big sweeping romantic epic even though it, it does give you it, it gives you a larger feel but i live that past life liver literally myself i think a lot of people have it's a common story where you have the the high school crush and 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 the connection there that goes deeper than you would think and thinking out back on all the what ifs that's kind of what this is about so I I was a fan. Celine Song hit it right on the head tonally for me. Uh, so I, I was a big fan. I'm I'm interested in rewatching it and now doing the film study with Mike on it. So that's yeah, I would recommend it. I I, I people shouting it out as this you know best picture you know in the spring. I don't know if that's necessarily its its future. Maybe a screenplay, maybe some performances, but. Definitely worth seeing. That's the new sure. thing now. I um, feel like everybody's now, it's like yeah. trying to find that thing in the first quarter of the year, first six months of the year that's going to crack that best picture field. Uh, I think everybody at the first sniff of anything, like a little bit elevated, everyone's like, but who knows? We've well, seen it more you. and more lately. Obviously, everything everywhere right. all at once. Early best picture winner, not just nominee. Obviously, Top Gun Maverick came out earlier yeah. in the year. But I do feel like it might be a little bit of trying to make Fetch happen here. But uh, you never know. We've had some, I mean, look, drive my car and, and things like that. So it's not necessarily that it needs to be big Still and flashy. Big. I just wonder, it, does it big and flashy and the time of the year. I don't know, but we'll see. I, I'm looking forward. To, I'm going to try to check it out. I don't know if I'm going to get to the theater while it's still out in the theater. I'm so behind. I just, I, I actually did something. I don't can't tell you the last time I've done this. 
I and this is not some holier than thou. I don't want to give money to Ezra Miller or whatever. I was just like, I'm not going to be able to fit this into my schedule. And so I literally just mm-hmm. started listening to podcasts about the Flash that spoil it blatantly. Yeah. Because I was like, you know what? I'm probably going to have this ruined for me one way or another by the time I get to see this. I might as well give myself some sort of content to enjoy. So I'll listen to the, you know, the big picture and the, the, the ringerverse and everything like that. So I sort of just like, instead of watching The Flash, I just like heard people talk about The Flash. So I know all the Easter eggs. I know all the spoilers. All the, So when I do see it, I'm sure I'm just going to be a, a big dud for me. But I, I can't remember the last time I did that. I, most of the time I wait, you know, religiously until I get to see something. And then I'll listen to the podcast. But this one I was like, look, who am I kidding? I'm not. I just saw six movies in a week, and unfortunately, you know, I was seeing the third documentary of a, of a week. I, I don't think I'm going to make it to the Flash in the next couple of weeks. I'd rather have Van Lathan tell me what happens. So that's what I did. I wonder if that enhanced or, or not, or that will enhance your viewing experience or not. So you'll have to report back. Uh, to me, at least on that, if you would. Uh, otherwise, uh, we, we got to get you back for SAG Mania 3 at the very least. Uh, but this is always a pleasure, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, Mike, Mike, and Oscar, you can find us everywhere. Uh, Challenge Mania uh, and, and Mike, Mike, and Oscar. If you guys can review us, rate us five stars. If you've stayed this entire episode, these long episodes on Tribeca, you're one of the true blue uh, fans of the film year. Uh, and, and yeah, we uh, hopefully uh, we've encouraged you guys to do your own film festivaling uh, in the future. Otherwise, we're at MM and Oscar on Twitter and Mike, Mike and Oscar on all the social medias. You know, if you can rate and review us, like I said, that'd be huge. But yeah, Scott, thank you. And uh, and uh, we'll have to do this again. Appreciate you, Mike. See you guys next time. <laughs>